Well, let me add my welcome to that of Suzanne's, uh, especially if you are new to All Souls or new to church, a warm welcome to you. My name is RJ. I serve as a pastor here. Um, I also bring greetings uh, from our friends in churches for the sake of others. That's our larger church network and family that is across the country, uh, and they're also known as C4SO. So if you ever hear us talk about C4SO, that's what that stands for, churches for the sake of others. I just got back from Atlanta, um, where pastors from C4SO were gathered to ask how to be churches truly for the sake of others, and brainstorm that together. And uh, we're really grateful for the leadership of our bishop, Todd Hunter, who led that conversation. Um, but we also, and I am personally very appreciative, to hear that there are other church leaders and other church communities who are praying for us and are thinking of y'all. So I just want you to know that. I bring greetings uh, from folks like Ashley Matthews, who will be visiting with us in October, and along with um, our newly minted Bishop Brian Wallace, uh, who will serve alongside Bishop Todd. He too will be here in October, and I hope to let you know about a time when we can get together to see him. But um, just know there are other churches across the country who send their love and care to us here in Seattle. And I would invite you now actually to join with me in prayer uh, for the blessing of those churches. So please pray with me. Lord, we think now of your grace that is so much bigger than any one of us or any one community, and your hospitality, which spans um, multiple different ways of worshiping, multiple different walks of life that uh, from all these different places, you welcome us in, and you are willing to call us family and call us to your table to eat with you and be with you. And so, Father, we pray uh, more and more that your kingdom would come in Atlanta, in Tulsa, in Des Moines, in Austin, in Chicago, in Washington, D.C., in Dallas, in Fayetteville, in all these places, and here in Seattle as it is in heaven. And Lord, would you even now make that so among us as we listen to your word? and ask you to shape us by your word and your promises, and discover you as you really are, perhaps sometimes uh, over and against who we make you out to be. Lord, um, reveal your glory to us, and among us we pray. Amen. So uh, today is the last sermon in what will uh, be now our summer-long series that will have concluded today, Exploring the Life of David. David's life is familiar to us, right, in its ups and downs, triumphs and, tri triumphs and uh, failures and joys and sorrows, and um, as Kara explored last week, especially toward the end of David's life, we just see how obviously he is, like, familiar and guilty of the worst of any of our failures. He has a storied past. He is no different than many of us. He had to learn to make important apologies, right? He had to learn to bear the painful consequences of his brokenness, and through it all, David has been showing us how prayer is a way through it all. Prayer as a way to live with a heart alive to God. And David's prayers in the Psalms are sort of like this soundtrack to his biographical story and his if you were a film, these moments of pain and betrayal and abandonment and failure and anger and grief and loss and celebration, and hope. And so as we come to the end of this reflection on David's storied life, I'd like to take a look back to the very beginning of David's story. There's so much we can learn from a story, or from our own stories, by looking back to the beginning. Uh, many of us, when we're born, we are in a situation where, as I've seen myself, but also as researchers have lately uh, really studied this, we are searching 
for eyes that we recognize and recognize us. Kids are drawn to circles, it turns out, as a shape when they're born, in part because of the eyes that they are searching for to look back to them. And here we have, as Sonia read in 1 Samuel 16, a vital key to understanding how David was able to have a heart alive to God, and it turns out how we might be able to as well at the beginning of his own story here. It happens here, starting in verse 6. And if you want to have your order of worship open and follow along with me, Samuel is this great prophet, if you remember, who has arrived to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel. Jesse has his, stun- his sons, you know, standing before the great prophet so he can, like, size them up and make the next move. And then we have verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Apparently he was tall. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, and Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had all seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So, Proudly presented by Jesse, these sons stand before Samuel as each in turn is not the one to be named king. The tension builds. This son, right? Certainly, but no. Samuel's bewildered. Like, he's wondering maybe has he missed some, like, message here from God? Was his prophetic edge, like, kind of losing its sharpness? Like, did he have the right town? This is Bethlehem, right? Like, isn't it? Are you Jesse? Like, I thought you were. Well, maybe there's another son. Verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. So as it turns out, and the world now knows, there was another son, David. But David enters the story unnamed dismissively referred to by his own father as the youngest. If you're the youngest of seven brothers, you're probably not going to be thought of as anything other than the youngest, I guess. The Hebrew word here for youngest is hakaton. It carries this undertone of insignificance, of not counting for very much. Certainly not like a prime candidate to be king, okay? This is the family run. His father's opinion of him, which is most likely shared by his brothers and is confirmed by the job that he's assigned to, he is out tending the sheep. It's the least demanding of all jobs on the farm, right? The place where the youngest could at least do the least damage. Because David was out of the way and mostly ignored as he tended the sheep, nobody even thought to bring him to Bethlehem that day. Oh, oh, the youngest. There is one more, the youngest. David, though invisible, even in his own family, probably his friends too to some extent, and fellow townspeople also, is yet looked upon by God with loving eyes. God sees him. And this insignificant one is the one who is chosen. 
Chosen and anointed. Chosen not for what everybody saw in him, certainly not his father, his brothers, not even Samuel, but because of what God saw in him. And David's eyes, which may have searched since birth for those eyes that see him and love him and a family of seven brothers, is beheld by God. The unlikeliness of David's selection is part of what allows any of us to have hope. It's funny to think about this moment in David's life. Like, what would have stood out to people at the time was probably, you know, if you were looking on, that Jesus's, you know, fine sons were passed over. Or sorry, Jesse's fine sons were passed over. We'll get to Jesus. <laughs> but Jesse's fine sons were passed over. And David, he like showed up late as usual, I guess. Where was that guy? But after being anointed for some like important thing that maybe some people are clear about, some people are not, it was, it was kind of back to old ways for a while. David's path to kingship was a long one as we've explored this summer. So even after this anointing, it wouldn't have been long before the brothers were dominating the life of the family again and the work of the town again. And, and David was out with his sheep, right? Out of sight, out of mind. I didn't forget. And you don't have to either. Like, since hearing the story of David in college, I've come back again and again to David's story and this particular moment in it. There's a sense in which I was always David. I still am David. It's the intent and skill of this biblical story writer to turn everyone who reads or hears the story of David into realizing something is essentially David about him or herself. Our weakness and our failing, yes, but something still more true. In my insignificance, God sees me. At my worst, God sees me, and he chooses to draw close and invite me to draw close. Verse 11, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Friends, what I want to come to grips with today is that God sees you. He sees me. He chooses you to love you, to bless you, to send his spirit into your life, to give you a heart alive to him. Especially in the moments when we feel unseen, when we are searching for those eyes that could tell us we're known, we're loved, we're safe. There's God who calls us in from our insignificance and has a blessing, an anointing for us. Friends, we can't be human without God. That's what Christians believe. We can't get away from God, whether we like it or not. We can't act as if God weren't our designer. You know, we, we maybe can try. We can act that way, perhaps, as if he weren't faithfully present. But when we refuse, we're less our essential humanity is less. Our lives are diminished and impoverished. And it's that lessness that actually gives us an important clue to understanding ourselves. We're aware of something we lack so much of the time, are we not? 
We confess this in confession, that we're not complete. And the Christian message is this, in and under and all around these incompletions is God. God is who we need. The God hunger, the God thirst, David so often refers to in his prayers, the Psalms, like a deer pants for a stream, right? Like the gift of springs of water on the valley of Baca, like the leading of the good shepherd by still waters, like the planting of the tree as we just read in Psalm 1. David shows us that the God thirst is the strongest drive we actually have. It's stronger even than our longings for sex or power or security or fame, even all those put together, because even if and when we have these things, as David's life proves, we find again that familiar incompleteness, that drive to be truly seen, truly chosen, truly special, not just the youngest. So compare David with Saul for a second. Let's just think about some comparisons here in the way that David's life played out. So David and Saul. Saul was driven to prove his specialness, was he not? For him, it took the form of violent jealousy. He pursued David and tried to kill him as a threat to what he understood as his specialness, right? Now compare David with Solomon. Solomon also chased specialness. For him, it took the form of being a worldly sort of connoisseur, a connoisseur of worldly wisdom and things and famous women, But David, shepherd boy David, the youngest, came to a realization that what made him special wasn't what he could do to demonstrate it, to prove it, to chase it, but simply to receive it as given by God. While he was beckoned to come in from way out in left fields in significance. Verse 11 again, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. What a gift. What a pivotal moment that changed David's life and through David, the whole kingdom of Israel. David shows us that a person who knows they are seen by God is a person who sees people as they are. A person who knows in their insignificance they are seen by God, that that significance is granted and not chaseable. That specialness is not something deficient in God's eyes when he looks at you, but given when God looks at you Let that soak in for a second. Friends, being lovingly seen by God is the only way to be freed up to see other people as they are. We are otherwise constantly sizing up people around us for how they can make us special. We're wondering how this person, right, in my life is going to make my life better. We look at people, in other words, as a means to an end. You can never serve someone. You can never truly see someone from that place. If you're familiar with the sci-fi sort of futuristic show Black Mirror, there's this episode in which people are walking around and they have these like visuals that show 
sort of like in this interactive, probably metaverse glasses kind of way, uh, these ratings for the people that are all around them, like some real-life Instagram, right? And so what ends up happening is all these people perform for likes and follows and interact with the people around them toward that end. So in the end, everyone is blinded from seeing each other because they're so focused on their own appearance. This isn't just like a futuristic scenario. This is present-day reality, friends. Richard Rohr puts it well. It's in the front of your order of worship, this quote. Most people do not see things as they are. They see things as they are. We see the world as we are and want to be seen. And how can we escape from these blinding filters, these glasses that just don't seem to come off? How did David, how did David become the kind of person who was known for his justice when he was king? A king who saw the least in his kingdom, a king who saw the average person, a king who saw the minority, a king who saw and loved the poor. David was a foretaste of the king that would later come, the son of Jesse, David's greater son, King Jesus. Jesus, right, who would be known for noticing, (laughs) for seeing the leper, for seeing the desperate Zacchaeus strangled by his riches, who would see the tax collector trapped in his guilt, the fishermen and women, the women who grasped his robe longing to be healed, Jesus who would tell parables about insignificant small things. He drew cosmic relevance to the mustard seed, (laughs) yeast, salt. Jesus whose ministry was marked by helping the blind see. And how did that happen? It happened first when Jesus noticed them. The unexpected, the forgotten one, the left out one, the unremarkable one, the shortest on the team, the disabled, the insignificant, the youngest, David. This is who God has shown interest in. This is who God seeks. Why? Because he wants all of us to know that he sees even the ones who typically don't get seen. Even you, even me. He's not trying to exclude the highly visible or anyone at all. It's just the opposite. To show that anyone who ever feels unseen, that that is indeed not the case. God sees even the ones who are overlooked. Even if you are overlooked by your closest friends, by the family that knows you best, not so with God. God sees you. God sees you as you are. And he invites you to come in from the obscurity of the fields to the very throne of grace. What if this is the key moment to David's life? A life lived with a heart alive to God. This early moment in David's life that shapes his story going forward, that gives him his confidence that this truth that activates our own hearts is one that just can be a life lived with God. A God that sees us as we are and invites us in. The confidence that has given David to pray his life to God, to talk like God's actually listening. David's life is vital. This moment in his life is vital. And it shows us that life with God is plausible. God sees David when it seems like no one does, and so David talks to him. He feels so bold as to pray to him, to shout to him, to at times shout at him 
for help, for healing. Friends, do you know God sees you? If so, why then do we chase being seen? Why then do we chase being seen as special in the so very many ways we do that? By overworking? By tending more to our social media accounts than the real people in our lives? By passing on what our hearts tell us is right in order to be accepted by our peers? Who are we blind to that God is inviting us to see right now? How does God seeing you change your perspective? I want to try something, friends. It's my conviction and experience that we're only ever able to offer what we have received. So I want to ask you, and let's take some time to like sit with this question and meditate on it for a minute. If you want to write something down, you can. If you want to close your eyes, you're welcome to do that. What is an area in your life you wish you could be more confident that God sees? What's an area in your life, or maybe a relationship in your life, or maybe a, something that happened this week or today, you wish you could be more confident that God sees? could be a moment of struggle, a moment of feeling out of your depth, a moment where you experience fear. It could be an area of just profound hurt for you right now. If you can, try and settle on one thing and if not, it could be a few things, but now imagine Jesus present to you in that situation or situations. Seeing you. Noticing. Entering into that situation to love you, what does he say? How would you like God to see you? Now, what do you see about this situation? Is it any different? How do you more clearly see people as they are in this situation? close, I want to pray from Psalm 139. It's Psalm of David. You search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I, made it in, when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I'm still with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for seeing us. Make us to be a people who see people as you do, as they are. For your glory and the world's good. Amen.